Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Kelly Stewart. Welcome to the Think Orphan podcast, where we seek to help you navigate the orphan crisis with experts from around the world. We are so thankful to have you back this week and just want to let you know how much we appreciate your feedback, whether you are sending in questions for the mailbag, whether you are giving us ratings or reviews on iTunes so other people can hear about it, or whether you're just giving us suggestions. We just want you to know how much we appreciate and look for uh, your feedback. We want to make uh, Think Orphan just the best that it possibly can be and, and meet the needs that you have. And so we love collaboration. So if you have any ideas, we would just love to hear uh, what those might be. You can email us at info at thinkorphan.com. You can find us at our Facebook page or on Twitter. So please just send in a few things and let us know what we can do to make uh, the podcast better. So Phil, with that, what do we have in store today? Yeah, I just want to reiterate that um, what you just talked about. It's so important for us to hear from you because You know, Kelly and I are learning right alongside you and we are seeking this information right alongside you. And so our thoughts on who these people are, we're no expert on all this stuff. Both of us say, I don't know a lot. Both of us are trying to figure all this stuff out right alongside all of you. And so we're, we're trying to find these people who we think will help you. But we want to hear from you as well, as I talked about last week, on who you think we should be hearing from on who you think we should be interviewing because that matters to us. And I've actually had a couple people this week in response to last week's, um, podcast, uh, just send in, send me some, uh, people, send me some people. Hey, these are some people that I think, uh, you guys should interview. And it's been so helpful just to have those conversations with those people to hear why those people are important to them and why they think they should be on the show. Because it's not only the people, but also the subjects and the topics and things that, that are out there, which is why the mailbag is important, which is why we think the thoughts from the field to just get little snippets from people. All those things are so, have been so good to me as far as learning um, on, uh, from all these people, from on learning on all these topics. So um, as Kelly said, all of that is so welcomed and will be in, encouraging us in a lot of ways to think better and uh, bigger for, for everyone out there to be able to learn more. Um, also, the iTunes ratings and reviews are so important to get this podcast out there more to more people. We're not, it's not for our you know, edification to say, oh, good, another review. Um, it's really to get it out there to more people who we know can learn from these great people who were able to get on the show. So with that, I, I have another, uh, had another great interview um, that you're going to be able to hear here in a few minutes from, with Matt Storer, the president and CEO of Vision Trust. And uh, I have no doubt that you will learn something from this man who has been doing this work for a long time. He is a man that has confident confidence and humility. And it's that posture, that combination of the two that makes him so um, uh, encouraging to me and so powerful in this space um, because he's able to teach people from his experiences and from the uh, lessons that he has learned on the field. And he's another guy who says, I don't know a lot and who says, hey, let's figure this out together a lot. And you'll hear that uh, coming through in this interview. Um, and also after the interview, definitely don't, don't stop it right after the interview because you're going to hear some thoughts from the field that are really some people's thoughts on the term orphanage and what it means to them when they hear that word. Uh, we also have a recommendation in the Phil and Kelly recommend segment. Um, but, uh, for now we're going to go ahead and hear from Matt. 
Well, Matt, it is great to have you today on the show. Hey, it's great to be here with you, Phil. Hey, Matt, I, I know that uh, you and I have had a, a friendship over the last few years, and I, I greatly appreciate the, what we've been able to, to do together and just the conversations we've had. Um, but I know a lot of our audience uh, out there really hasn't heard your story and doesn't, doesn't know about you or Vision Trust. And I was, I was just hoping you could uh, briefly share with them your story and kind of how you got to be where you are today. Hey, it's a good question. I'm really glad to be here with you guys today. Um, you know, Vision Trust is the organization that I'm working with, and I've been doing that for 12 years. And I came out of the uh, business consulting world, IT world, back in 2004, and joined my father-in-law in a little small ministry called Vision Trust. We're working about five countries then, and our main goal was to reach out to some of the most poor kids in the developing nations and find a way to holistically develop them over years. Uh, so they can grow up to live for God and love others one day. And so what that looks like is a healthy, educated child that can stand on their own two feet and really, from a heart perspective, you know, love God, not just be sort of part of the social club. So we've been doing that uh, altogether. The work of Vision Trust has been around for 17 years. And in fact, we're in 17 countries today, working with about 16,000 kids. And uh, we've, we've never been more excited to do this work. Yeah, and can you tell me a little bit about that work? I know we've talked about it, but uh, I know that if you can just tell the expansive nature, really, of what Vision Trust is doing. Yeah, yeah, um, it's fun, I, I have to tell you, and heartbreaking, because, you know, working with the super poor, as is, is I call them, um, some of the kids that are in the most difficult, transient, uh, poor communities, the stories are horrendous. But we, God calls us into these nations. Um, we, we look to be invited in, so to speak, sort of that Henry Blackaby approach of, uh, find out where God's working and join him. And so that's been our plan of growth through the years of connecting with indigenous leaders. And <clears throat> we find out where people aren't being helped already. And we go in and we do a little research and find out what is the real problem that these kids face. Are they orphaned? Do they have a home? Do they have caregivers? Um, are they being trafficked? Do, you know, what is their health condition? And then we work in, as I mentioned, 17 countries. So we got like Buddhist communities, Hindu communities, animist communities, various synchronized religions. You take all that into consideration and we're trying to design a program that develops the kid holistically. They, they're developed with their nutrition and their bodies and their you know, vaccinations um, and then proactive uh, health with hygiene and, and food security, which would be access to water, sanitation, uh, and food on a regular basis. And then getting them into school and helping them stay in school and be successful in school. And then spiritually, we want to develop them, uh, like I said, to grow up to live for God and love others. And that means that they need to learn God's word. They need to be loved. They need to be mentored. And maybe they need to even know how to teach others you know, and be a leader and share God's word, even as a young adult, uh, to help train them up. So we're more of like an outcome-based ministry. So we, we're focused on those three dimensions, the healthcare, education, spiritual discipleship. We have outcomes set. And then we design the program, uh, the model, if you will, that best accomplishes that work. 
Yeah, and I, and I know that that um, a lot of organizations focus really in one area as far as you know adoption yeah. or foster or orphanages, and and that's really not the case with, with you. And I know that we've talked uh, about that too. Can you share a little bit about how you are able to work in the entire spectrum and how you go about deciding? Um, as you said, I mean, it's a, it's a determination on a case by case, but what are some of those factors that you're looking at in these different communities to determine how to best approach the care of the orphan and vulnerable children there? Yeah, you know, Phil, you know, because we're both in the same space, it's it's always interesting. You know, everybody's got a different perspective. And, you know, I'd like to just say right out front that there's no right way uh, or one way to, to help these kids. And so, you know, you know, my perspective is one of many. Uh, and so, you know, I applaud anybody that has a passion to go out there and help, but there are some best practices, you know, that we yep. can, we can work to, to learn about, read about, go get mentored, go learn from other organizations and take, take the best practices and, and, and try to focus on doing what's best for the child, not, not taking one approach that you learn and applying it to every scenario. You know, it's the old hammer and nail, right? Yep. <laughs> if you got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so we're trying to say, you know what? Well, if we focus on what's best for the kid, we probably need to do that research, like I mentioned earlier. You know, go in and find out what's actually happening on the ground, understand the culture, and get maybe some info from the community about how they see they need a solution to help the kids. For example, maybe instead of coming in just with an orphanage. And, and then we raise the kids, maybe there's alternatives. And so right now we have four different models um, and they all can be tweaked. One is a classic orphanage. Another one is a school. And another one is an after-school program. We call them learning centers. And then we have a, a twist on the learning center and we call it a village empowerment. It's kind of a fancy name. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, Phil, why we have an orphanage generally is – Kids in these communities that need a home, um, we have our orphanage are only places where the government is the custodian of the child. They're the guardian, and they have to appoint that child into some orphanage. And so that's the kind of kids we have in our orphanages. The government has placed them there legally. They don't have another alternative just yet. For kids that don't need a home like that, we encourage them to live with families. And so even if they're orphaned, you know, we, we work hard to get families in the community to care for the kids. And then they come to our school or they come to our after school program and get supplemental care. Right. And, and, uh, you know, as far as there's a lot of talk about orphanages and, and, and the, the, implicit um, statement you made there really is orphanages are not the number one choice for what, what you're doing. And, but they are part of the analysis. And so if you're talking to people that are actually doing orphanage work out there, um, what would your, your advice be to them or people that are wanting to start an orphanage, people that are coming into the, this space and are thinking, you know, I want to go out and that's what I know. What would your right. advice be to them um, as yeah. they're getting started in this work? Well, Phil, you know, we've, I'd say do your homework. Um, really put your hammer down and, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and just focus on what's best for the child. So one of the basic things I would do is just realize like statistically, you know, um, for us, we have about 16,000 kids. Only 30% of the kids are, have lost one or both parents in our 16,000 kids. We have 205 programs around the world, but only eight of them are orphanages. Um, 
in Central African Republic, we have our after-school programs. And I, I bring that up because there's 11 locations, about 600 kids we're serving, and every one of them are double orphans. Hmm. And they're living with families. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, so how did we get there, right, to answer your question? Right. I'd say, I'd just say, <clears throat> you know, um, there are alternatives to to the orphanage sometimes. And look for opportunities where the community naturally wants to bring kids into their home as opposed to the easier route of creating an orphanage. And I, I say that it's not easy to run an orphanage, but think about it. You have full control. Right. So a lot of our solutions, you know, well, let's build an orphanage. We'll bring the kids in. We'll get great leaders and we'll do a great job developing them and we'll have control. Well, the kids are safe. Um, we'll be able to invest in their lives 24 seven. Um, and we'll be able to help, you know, 10 to a hundred kids, but there are all our, there are alternatives out there. And for example, maybe we don't pursue them because it's more difficult. And Phil, I mean, if you let me, I share a couple examples of the difficulty. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, one of the, the, you know, so imagine this, um, grandma is willing to raise up her four orphaned grandkids it's classic, right? You got the bookend generation Mm -hmm. because the middle generation died from AIDS or or some problem. And, but grandma sees that there's an orphanage down the road opening up and wouldn't, I mean, grandma's like, Hey, you, you raise my kids for me. Right. Right. Because she's struggling. Mm -hmm. So we have a choice to make. We can do the easy thing. And I, again, I don't mean easy, like running an orphanage is easy. I'm saying it's easy because you, you have control. Right. So we say, we'll bring the kids into our orphanage. But what we've done there possibly is remove that child's family from their life when their family exists, when their family was actually willing to raise them, but they're struggling. So we have an option here. We could go back to the family and say, what do you need to create capacity in your family to care for your own grandkids? How could we help you raise your own kids? How can we invest in the life of the kid and spiritually in their health and in their success through education. Are there alternatives? And there are. And that's kind of the perspective of Vision Trust. If It's sort of like the orphanage is more of the last resort. Right. Um, and really our first goal is that the kids live with a family member. So that's where a school can come in handy or an after-school program can come in handy. The, the key is <clears throat> registering the kids in a program so that there is someone – every day looking out for the kid. Yeah. You know, if, cause if they're in that poor community, that's when they're at risk for being trafficked. That's when they're at risk of being sold into early marriage. That's when they're at risk of being forced to do child labor at an early age and never go to school. Right. So if they're registered in some kind of a daily program, like a school or an after school program, we can check in on the kid and then basically supplement the care they need to be successful. Yeah, and that's what's so great about what you're doing as far as what you just talked about there touched on family strengthening and poverty alleviation and discipleship. Mm -hmm. And as, you know, if we can do that, then that can help to prevent trafficking. That can help to prevent the need for these orphanages, the need for the adoptions, the need for things like that if we're able to keep these kids and their families and to help those who are caring for them. Yep. Yeah. And did you said you had another example or or is that all within what you were were, – discussing there 
Well, there's there's many examples. Uh, you know, that's that's just one of them. Another one is, um, <clears throat> you know, the world of international adoption is an amazing um, gift for folks that can bring children into their homes. Um, but as as we all have heard, there are some horror stories that go along with it occasionally, and it's the same idea. You know, if we really go in uh, trying to help the orphan and create an orphanage. Um, we actually could be encouraging families to give up their kids prematurely, go to an orphanage, and <clears throat> then those orphans could potentially be, you know, available for adoption. And you have to understand that like that grandmother or even a single mom in Africa, for example, it's pretty standard protocol, at least in sub-Saharan Africa, for a family to allow their kid to go live with another family temporarily to go work, go live with aunt and uncle up in the jungle or up where they're doing a lot more uh, harvesting. But they know they still have the relationship with their child. Right. And so some orphanages may encourage moms to give up their kid, allow us to raise their kid. And mom's kind of happy to do it because she's thinking that she can still have access to the child and one day the child will come back and help care for her. Yeah. But then that doesn't happen sometimes and they lose the connectivity. And even sometimes those children get adopted. Right. And, um, you know, for all the wrong reasons, not because of folks that have the passion and the heart to adopt. It's the people that are running the, the actual program are, are miss, you know, misaligned and, and doing some bad things. So, there's, there's several scenarios I could, I could keep going on and on. The, the key thing is just keep what is best for the child in mind, right? not what's easy for us. Yeah, and that's the one thing that, you know, talking to people about international adoption that they don't realize is so uh, too often the biological parents or grandparents are, are told what you said, which is, uh, you know, they're going to go to the U.S. and come back and, and help you later in life. And that just doesn't that's not what the people on the other side are told nor is that part of the arrangement and so mm-hmm. it, it, we just don't understand that side of it mm-hmm. we being Americans in the states you know or other people who just aren't in that culture and so that's that's where i think you know folks like you who are in both can be such a great uh, source of wisdom for that mm-hmm. so um yeah yeah and i don't want to scare anybody who you know might be considering adoption or scare anyone who is saying you know i really feel called to, uh, to run an orphanage um, but, 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 you know, I think what I really want you to hear me is, is do your homework, do your research. If you are adopting internationally, you really probably need to know exactly, ask a lot of questions. Like where do the kids come from? Can you confirm, do they have existing family or not? I mean, ask very explicit questions right. and look at their track record and then find families that have already adopted from that country and find out what their story is. Um, and then if you want to go do an ado- uh, orphanage, just learn what the kids really need. Are they really orphaned? For example, I, Phil, I'll give you a, a quiz. You ready for a quiz? <laughs> Uh-oh. I wasn't prepared, yeah. but pop quiz. Go for it. Yeah, okay. I shouldn't do this to you. But <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Because you really don't know the stats, all right? So just play, just pretend. <laughs> Got play it. with Got me. It. So in, in Cambodia, what do you think the percent of children who are living in orphanages in Cambodia, the number who are actually orphaned as a percent of the total? The ones that are actually in the, it's about, what about 
10, 20%, 10 to 20% probably. I love you, Phil. You're actually really great. So one of the, the reports I saw statistics was 25%. One out of every four kids living in an orphanage is an actual orphan. Mm-hmm. What do you think the stat is in India? Oh, probably 10, five to 10. You're, you're good, man. So it drops from, from like Cambodia, I said it was 25%. The report I saw for India was 15%. Yeah. Okay. So that's, you know, 15 out of a hundred, cause I, I couldn't do a better math than that. You know, <laughs> our uh, actual orphans. And, and so when you have a, a somebody here in the States and, and others who want to help, they're thinking I'm dealing with orphan Annie here. They're, right. they're thinking I'm dealing with a child that needs a home. Right. And, and so you create an environment where that's the expectation. But the reality is there aren't that many kids that really need an orphanage compared to this, the vast super poor that need help. Yeah. Right. And there's a scenario here. I actually, um, I was asked to go to Zimbabwe to, to look at taking over a small ministry that was started. It was excellent little ministry, but once ministries that are small kind of get up and running, they realize it takes a lot to keep it going, you know, administratively and quality, so I was in Zimbabwe doing a little research and, and I, I found out what their parameters were for helping kids in this community. And it was that each kid had to be a double orphan. Hmm. And <clears throat> as I started interviewing the families in the community and looking at their solution, I found that a double orphan living in the chief's hut was treated identically to the double orphan living with a child-headed household hut. Hmm. Because the criteria was they're a double orphan. Right. And so imagine, I mean, the kid living in the chief's hut had a pretty good life. Right. But the kid living in the child-headed household didn't. Mm-hmm. But they yet had equal opportunity to be a part of this program because their status was double orphan. So it's just another perspective to be reminded of that, you know, don't come in with that hammer. Um, go, go do your homework and and uh, do a lot of praying too. Absolutely. And speaking of doing your homework, I mean, you've talked about, you've alluded to the fact that collaboration is key to the work that you're doing. Collaboration with national leaders, people on the ground who are, who know these cultures, who are part of the cultures that you're working in. And, but with that comes, you know, due diligence on your side. So how do you foster that collaboration and ensure that the other organizations and individuals are a good fit to work with Vision Trust? Man, that, that's probably the biggest challenge because, uh, you know, we are here in the U.S. and the countries we're working in are everywhere but the U.S. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how do you do it this long distance? So it starts with that great expectations uh, and, uh, from, from a collaborator. So we look for local leadership, local indigenous staff that are capable. Um, we set up uh, references. So we're looking for people who come to us by reference, not just people that we ran into and took us around and and had good English. Right. So, <laughs> so we're like, Oh, we love this guy. He can run our program. Um, so, you know, you want references, you want to spend a lot of time with them and then you want to hire them with a contract and the contract might have expectations listed out for financial management, expectations on what the goals of the ministry is to develop the kids. Even if you have conflict, how to resolve conflict, um, you have the right to audit them. You have, um, financial, examples exactly of how you want to do reporting, et cetera, then you probably want a local board or committee 
to be a part of governing that leader. That brings some local transparency and it helps with things like getting money out of banks without one guy being able to do it by themselves. So that's, that's part of it. Another key part though is having very clear outcomes defined in the development of the kids. Mm-hmm. So if you don't know what you want, how can you expect your local person to deliver on it? Right. So when the local person is going off your plan, so to speak, of what you had in your head, you don't have a way to keep them accountable because you didn't define exactly what it was you wanted. Right? Yeah. <clears throat> and I think if you put those basic things into place, you at least are set up for success mm-hmm. at the basic level because you have an agreement that specifies how we're going to operate together and we agree to it. So when they don't do it, you can go back to the agreement. <clears throat> and then when it's developing the child, you have a way to measure the health, um, the education and the spiritual development of the child so that you can say you're doing a good job or you're not doing a good job. Right. So those are some basic things. And then I'd say encouraged to have an attitude of the local guys are in charge. Yeah. So, and th- this is really difficult, Phil. I'm sure you've dealt with this. It's like, you know, we have the opportunity to come in and build the program and hire locals and then give them the keys to the kingdom later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. You know, right. But that will work. But I, if you really look at the statistics there, it'll show you that it doesn't work very many times. It's, yeah. it's a low probability of success. What's a higher probability of success is that the local people own it from the beginning. Yep. And so um, I have this theory where I was like, don't go too fast too soon. Start slow. Slow with money. Slow with number of kids they help. And grow into a ministry with them. So you can let them own it with little responsibility up front, little money. Teach them, teach them. And then slowly add more money, add more staff. And you're helping them grow. Okay, so Phil, let's say let's – say, um, let, let's say you make $100,000 a year because I, I can't do math very well. Just yeah, go with right. it. Right. Got it. All right. Now, let's say this guy that you hire locally was making before you hired him $100 a month, mm-hmm. which would be sort of a middle class, lower middle class. Right. Sadly. And then, Phil, somebody comes to you. You're making hundred grand, remember? Yep. And they say, I want you to run a business. And I'm going to give you $10 million a month. Right. And you've never had to manage $10 million a month. Mm-hmm. Now go back to our little guy who's making 100 And we came in and we said, we're going to give you $10,000 a month to run this program. Right. That's the same yep. magnitude. It's 100 times. Right. I mean – it's no wonder some of these guys struggle with good management practices or temptation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a hundred times what they're normally getting each month. And, it, you know, just to put it in context like us here, it would be like us managing $10 million a month. So it's, it's better just to, you know, pilot it, start small and then slowly grow. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's, very, very wise, and I know that it's something that we've we've run into too. And I think the key there, like you said, is give them the keys from the beginning because it really is hard to transition. And as you said, that's very, very low 
success rates um, in that uh, for reasons. And, and that a couple of things you said in in the in the due diligence side of things and in partnering and in the collaborating is implied a couple of things, and I want you to get into that a little bit more. The first is to have outcome based, you know, to have outcomes that are set out at the outset, which implies back in supervision, which implies, you know, that there is still oversight, even though they do have the keys, you know, and they are running. Exactly. Um, What does that look like? Yeah. um, You know, Vision Trust, we're always learning. Uh, So even some principles I'm sharing with you today, you know, maybe in 10 years, we'll we're like, wow, you know, we. We didn't see that coming and we learned some more. But one of the things we've been learning is moving from what I call process to outcome based. And, you know, so process would be like, well, we'll get the kids in school and we'll provide some tutoring. That's a process. You're not really looking at the actual outcome. Right. You're, you're just getting them into school, um, feeding them. We're going to get them a meal every day. Uh, and when they're sick, we'll give them some medicine. That's process. So an alternative outcome would be, well, what's a healthy kid look like? What should their height and weight be? What vaccinations should they have? Um, what iron levels should they have? And then design their nutrition program accordingly versus if my goal was just process-based to feed them, I just make sure their tummies are full. Right. And and so just it's more about intentionality there than than anything. So if you come in and you say, here's what a healthy kid looks like. Uh, and then here's what educated child looks like. And here's what is, if you have a kid in your program for 10 years and you taught them Bible stories, what should they know in 10 years? Right. What behaviors should they have? So what that does is now that you go in with a mission team, let's say from the U.S., you bring a mission team in to help the locals. If the mission team is aware of these outcomes that you have, they can actually help you assess are the local teachers doing the job to help achieve the outcomes? Or when they put their little program together as a mission team, they know what the outcomes are. And so they're not just randomly coming in with Bible stories or randomly coming in with ideas. Everybody aligns up their their plan of development for the kids according to the outcomes. Hmm. And then it even matters into the budgeting. Like we go through annual plans with each country and say, for this year, where are you in the development path of the outcome for health? How are you doing? You know, how far are you along? And so we don't expect them to have everything done in one year, but we expect them to take steps every year to a quality program. So having clear outcomes allows you to have clear steps toward achieving it. And then you put your plan together that year of which steps you want to take. So this aligns fundraising, it aligns the mission teams, it aligns training, and it keeps people focused on what matters most versus random. I mean, Phil, have you ever had somebody come up to you that you're working with in these foreign countries and say, what we really need is a chicken farm? Yep. And you're like, well, how's that going to help us achieve our goals? Mm-hmm. Well, our neighbor down the street's got one, so we should have one. Right. And now you're like, well, if you didn't have a clear outcome and a clear plan of what was important that year, you might be tempted to jump into the chicken farming business to help raise food for the kids. But maybe the basics aren't covered yet for the kids, you know. And so I'm just saying it keeps having that perspective really helps everybody stay aligned and um, and donors love it. So yeah. if you're one of those guys that has to fundraise to do this work. 
they're like, what's your plan? You go, here's my plan. It's pretty clear. And I think they appreciate it as well. Absolutely. And, uh, you said a couple things in there as well. You talked about training and, and, uh, how do you do the ongoing training for your, your, uh, the ministry partners globally, but also for, you know, teams that you're, you're taking out there and, and other people within the ministry, what, what's the training look like in the curricula that you're developing? Yeah. Training's tricky. Um, but it has to repeat, right? I mean, that, that's the key. I, I think sometimes it's not even necessarily the super level of quality, but it's the fact, are you focused on it and are you doing it? And then do you repeat it? Mm. And I think vision trust is, a little weak in the repetitive training. We're working on that. I mean, you know, two years ago you did a training on a subject and two years later they forget, you know, or you have new staff and they don't know about it. So that's one thing that we've been learning is making sure we're repeating. But how, how, how it actually looks is we do <clears throat> annual training with each country director and a couple of their key staff and we bring them together regionally. So all the Africans come together once a year and we focus on a theme for that year and we bring training of leadership development. We even look at their spouse's relationship, their health of their marriage. And then we look at budgeting and planning for that country. And then we go deep in a subject, one of them being health education or discipleship. And rather than Matt Storr having to be an expert on all these things, and we don't have enough money to hire a bunch of people <laughs> for right. trainers, um, which is probably the case of most of us out there working we'd form teams of volunteers that are experts. So um, in the area of health, and we have a global health team that's run by one person and she recruits our donors and volunteers in areas of expertise like nutritionists, um, <clears throat> agriculture guys, uh, mental health, mental trauma experts, you name it, they're all and so as we create our, uh, we identify areas of need for training, we have them develop the training as the expert and, you know, and then deliver it. Um, so that, that's one example. And then in the area of uh, our mission teams, we are members of the Standards of Excellence and Short-Term Missions. You ever heard of that group? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so we've been a partner for them for years and they've been coaching us and getting us to have all of our, our training materials in place and, uh, safety issues with teams, et cetera. And we just received our accreditation with them, which is pretty exciting for yeah. us. And so my point to all this is, is we don't build a lot of our own curriculum. We, we go to those experts, we go to people like SOE and we steal their materials. So we form, right. <laughs> we form partnerships with people like David C. Cook, who publishes um, some great materials with dealing with orphans or vulnerable children who are traumatized. And we have a, a, a agreement with them that we can reproduce their materials for no cost. Mm. And we have an agreement with uh, 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 Community Bible Study International, similarly, where we can take their curriculum for children and <clears throat> together we, we help pay to translate it if it's in a, not in the language we need, but they give us permission to reuse and at no cost, you know? So I just encourage people that, you know, you don't have to build it yourself, right? Um, but find partners that have it. You'll be surprised today. Many organizations are more willing to work together than ever. I think mm. it's pretty exciting. 10 years ago, I'm not sure that was the case, 
but today I'm super excited. I think organizations are, are, uh, doing a great job of collaborating. Yeah, I agree with that, which is why I'm so excited about, you know, the potential, especially with technology, like this podcast is a great example for people to hear different, uh, organizations that are out there that are doing stuff similar to what they're doing. And hopefully this will foster more and more collaboration, more and more, uh, synergy that can happen that you and I both know happens when you actually work together versus working just parallel with other people, um, mm-hmm. which often unfortunately could potentially be destructive to the work that's been going, that's going on if you aren't working together, um, mm-hmm. for various reasons. And so to not see each other as competitors, but companions on this journey, uh, yeah. is something that's so important. Uh, and I know that that's something you've been at the forefront of and something you've been very involved with. And I appreciate that in you and, uh, at the different conferences and, and not just the conferences in voice, but in action, um, and the work the vision trust is doing. So thanks for that. Yeah. Um, thanks Phil. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you, you, you talked about short-term trips a little bit in the, in the standard of excellence. And I, I will, we'll link to those, uh, the, the standards of excellence has some great, uh, guidelines for missions trips. And I just want to encourage people to go look at that. Um, it's, it's along the lines of when helping hurts and the, and the discussion that, that, uh, um, is in that book as well, which has been referenced on the show a lot. Um, and uh, to hear how you guys are using mission trips is also in- encouraging in the sense that bring experts in to really speak truth into the into the lives of the people there, but not to go do a bunch of stuff for people. Um, right. So, and I know that that's what's going on there too. Um, as we kind of wrap up the interview though, I want to ask you um, just, if, is there one issue that you really think that uh, – one of the biggest issues orphan care movement is facing today and how we can address it. Yeah, I think one of the, the biggest issues and, you know, my, my, my filter is this developing nation, you know? Right. So, so, you know, I answer everything with that perspective. Um, and so I, I think one of the biggest issues in that area is just this, you know, I alluded to it at the beginning and it's this idea of our orphanage is good or bad. And there's, there's a pressure from UNICEF, which is being pressured from the United Nations, in my opinion, and they're putting pressure on governments to eliminate orphanages um, because they're saying they're all bad. Right. And um, then you've got folks who feel called to go start an orphanage, right? So those mm-hmm. are two ends of the spectrum. And, and so I think the kids are caught in the middle. And, and so I, I think the biggest challenge that we, we really need to, to, to be communicating to one another, encourage one another is stay focused on what's best for the child, not what's best for UNICEF or for foreign policy, not, not what's best on paper. It's really looking at that child. And if, if, if they shut down orphanages because they just say they're not healthy, that's short sighted because some kids need an orphanage based on their, you know, maybe they've got some disabilities. Maybe the family members that would take them back are all drug addicted and, and in and out of jail and and uh, are going to abuse or sell those kids. You know, mm-hmm. and so by closing down an orphanage, you might creating more of a human trafficking issue and abuse. Um, so it's it's not an all or nothing. So I think if, if, if I can encourage us to all have a voice in this is to focus on what's best for the child today, acknowledging there's not one right way we need to create solutions based on the child. And, uh, and so that's my, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I had an opinion there or not. I think I was on a soapbox. So sorry. No, about that's, that. that's, I mean, no, it's, it's absolutely true. And I think that there, there, the opinion is that 
we need to really be intellectually honest. We need to go into this conversation. I'm assuming, I, mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems like what you're saying is just be intellectually honest when you go and evaluate what you're doing, what others are doing, and realize that there's a reality, there's theory, and we need to kind of figure out what the, the, the reality, how we can enter into the reality with the best practices, with the theory, um, and make decisions based on that rather than just living on a, in an ivory tower saying this is the best for everybody because that just simply isn't true. Exactly. So Well said. Um, as uh, we want to finish up here with the last couple questions that we do ask all of our guests, so um, I look forward to hearing your answers to these. Uh, the first one is what uh, have you read, uh, listened to, or watched over the past couple uh, years? It's most impacted your thinking on the issues surrounding the care of orphan and vulnerable children. Yeah. You know, um, two books. Uh, one was Paul Hebert's uh, Cultural Anthropology. Hmm. Uh, it's not a well-read book out there. Not everybody goes there, but he is a Christian anthropologist from um, – he's passed away for – for uh, the last couple decades. So, but what his stuff is in the, the things that he alludes to is he applies anthropology from Christian worldview and gives you that cultural context. So if you're doing work in a different culture, uh, it's a good read to open up your eyes about how vastly different we are from the local people. And he really does a great job of communicating that. And I'd also say poor economics. Hmm. I don't know if you ever heard of that book. I haven't, I haven't. Yeah, it's another great read. It's not a tip. These two aren't real typical in the Christian uh, orphan development space, right. uh, which is why I bring them up. Absolutely. Um, Poor, Eco- Poor Economics is a, a great book where they did studies. Um, you know, PhDs went in and did some studies on why poor people make purchase decisions. Hmm. So you ever been in a community where there's like a, you know, these super poor kids are walking around and they're eating chips in right. a, <laughs> and you're like, yeah. how did you buy a bag of chips. Right. Now, of course it's super cheap and they're not healthy. And so here they are unhealthy kids chowing on a bag of chips, right. you know, or you got the, the caregiver finding a way to get a smoke or, or a drink. Mm-hmm. You are like, where are they getting the money for this stuff? Right. And, but you know, the study here, poor economics might say to you, well, do you go to Starbucks mm. and, and do you have a mortgage? And so why would you go to Starbucks a hundred days a year when you still have a mortgage? Why wouldn't you take that money and pay off your mortgage? Well, you want a little treat, right? Poor people want a little treat. Their world is tough and they want a little treat. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, they did studies on when they gave them money or when they got job, what they did with their money. And mm. so it's an eye opener. It's a yeah. great book. Yeah, it sounds like it. So I, I look forward to reading both of those. Uh, the one that you said, the cultural anthropology, reminded me of a book, Family and Civilization. I don't know if you've read that by Carl Zimmerman, but I'm going to recommend that back to you. Um, yeah, I think, I think I'll really put that on my it. list. It's uh, written in 1948, just about all the major civilizations um, the world has known um, or had known to that date. And uh, just the importance of family at the outset of all of the them and how it destructed over time. And with <sighs> that the civilization destructed. And uh, it's really fascinating, especially given the world today. So I encourage you to read that as well as everyone out there to, to check that out too. But those two books you said, I'm looking forward to putting them on my list. Yeah, um, same here. Thanks. The last uh, question, what one person uh, has most impacted your thinking 
on the issues surrounding the care of orphan and vulnerable children. If you need to go couple, that's fine. But uh, if there's one and, and knowing the caveat, I always say, I don't say, but I imply is that uh, I'm sure there's more than one. But uh, with that, what's your answer? Yeah, I took this question really seriously. And um, so I don't want to sound too cheesy here, uh, but I, my father-in-law, actually, his name's Ernie Taylor. He's the founder of Vision Trust, the organization I work with. And he took about 35 years of his experience prior to starting Vision Trust. He worked for Youth for Christ International. Hmm. And he he learned what was good and bad, you know, for, for 35 years in hmm. ministry and working globally. And, you know, some of the principles I talked today about with indigenous local staff and having them own it and being holistic uh, and and having a focus on long-term commitment are some of the things he really ingrained in me. And uh, and I think he created a great foundation because, you know, he was my mentor in the early years. And uh, so he's he's the guy. Absolutely. Well, that's good stuff. Good way to end it. Um, thanks again, Matt, for your time. Thanks for all the wisdom that you shared with us. And thanks for all that you're doing around the world with Vision Trust. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, and uh, folks listening to the podcast, you know, if they ever want to connect up with us, um, happy to help in any way. Yeah. And on that note, can you, as we finish up, can you give your uh, website and how people can get more information about Vision Trust? Yeah, you can hit visiontrust.org. And you can also email us at info at visiontrust.org. And uh, one of the passions we have is to share information with other ministries and be very open with uh, the things we've learned and tools we have. Great. Thanks a lot. Well, I didn't say it before the interview because I didn't want to influence what you heard um, throughout that interview, but that was one of my favorite interviews that I've been able to do on this show. And not... It was because of the content, yes. The content was fantastic. But it was also just Matt's posture. As I said before, um, his confident humility. And, and some people would think that that is a, uh, you know, an oxymoron, but it's not. This guy, when you meet him, he's very confident in what he does. And you heard that throughout the interview. Um, but he also has a humility in what he does, as you heard throughout the interview. At least I hope you did. He said, th- he said something to me early on in uh, my work with orphan care that has stuck with me um, to this day. It was actually a big part of the posture that we took when we were wrote uh, in pursuit of orphan excellence. And it was that when I talked with him about, you know, doing this work, he said, and all the different um, people that were arguing with each other, all the people that were saying, no, we're right, we're right, we're right. Um, Matt said something to me that has stuck. And he said, you know, I don't want to get to heaven someday and find out that I was the one that was wrong. So when we're doing this work, I gotta keep a posture of humility. And so that's something that I encourage everyone out there to think about when we're doing this, to not stand, you know, to, to definitely stand tall on your convictions, to stand firm on what you're convicted about, but also take a step back and say, hey, what is this other person saying? What are they talking about? Why do they believe what they believe? Because they seem to really be standing firm on their convictions as well. So what would you think about what Matt uh, talked about, Kelly? Well, I think I totally agree with you. I think it, it definitely came across just the the humble uh, confidence. Like you said, I could definitely um, hear that in his voice, but also in the things that he shared. And so I, I love what they're doing. I mean, I don't I don't know how else to say it. I, I love that they are going to the poorest of the poor uh, where there are not uh, people already being helped. And I, so I just love that. Um, I also, 
I just appreciate the fact that it isn't this one size fits all that they really kind of take the time to establish a, a, a plan for each child and and are able to offer um, some some tweakable, as he, as he said, some tweakable programs for them. And just the sheer number that he shared of how many actual double orphans they have, um, and then how many are actually um, being cared for in families. And so I thought that was just, you know, it, it can be done. I mean, obviously, that's that's one of the things I, I feel like I, I heard from him is it may take longer, it may take some patience, it may be a little messy, but there are ways to kind of keep families together there are ways to um, to avoid putting a child straight into an orphanage and just to kind of step back and, and like you said, just to kind of assess the situation, look at it from all points of view, and then determine what is the best for this child. So those are the things that I really appreciate about what he had to share. Yeah, and that's, that's something that I, the more I do this work and the more I talk with people who have done this work for a long time, the more I think we're all coming to the conclusion this this stuff, and we've talked about this on the show, this stuff is so messy. And that's what I just love, you know, hearing Matt talk about. The best practices really are what's best for each child and each individual child. And, you know, it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. It's not something that you can just come into a particular community and say, oh, this community is X, Y, or Z. No, each child within that community is an individual child. And, yeah, there might be some things that are kind of universal to that area. But for the most part, each decision, each determination is a case-by-case basis. And, you know, that, that's something that I love what Vision Trust is doing. But the other thing that I absolutely uh, loved what Matt was talking about was the idea, you know, of the deep collaboration that they do. And it, that is so core to what they do. And that was so evident to me. I, I found out things that they're doing, the partnerships with David C. Cook and Community Bible Study. They don't reinvent the wheel. And I love it. And it's something that talking to Matt, there's the projects we're talking about working on together and ways that we can help each other in where's, you know, places we're weak, we can help. Uh, we can be helped by them in places where we're strong. We can help them. And big organizations are great at some things, but small organizations are great at other things. And I think that those are things that I see Vision Trust really, really doing in great ways because Matt knows they can't do it all. They absolutely can't do it all. For the resources they have, for the great things that they are doing, there are so many things, the vast majority of things in the world they cannot do. And he is very aware of that. But he doesn't say, well, forget it. He says, no, there are people who are doing it great. Let's partner with them. And that, if there's one thing that I want to encourage people out there with, it's that. It's really know what you're strong at. Do that the best you possibly can be. And find others to come around you and come alongside you to help build you up and to help make you better. And you do the same with them. And with that, we can actually hopefully make a dent in all this stuff in the world. What do you think of that? I totally agree. I totally agree. Yeah. So, you know, that, that brings us to the, to the thoughts from the field part, you know, which is something that we've talked a lot about on this show for good reason. The idea of orphanages. Um, there are so many different things that people think of when they hear the term orphanage. And that's one of the problems we have. One of the issues we have when we're talking about how we can actually make orphanages better. Um, whether we need to shut down orphanages, whether orphanages are a you know proper response to you know certain things that are going on in the world, one of the big issues we have is that we don't have a common definition. We don't have an understanding of that is exactly what an orphanage is. There is such a, a broad spectrum, an array of 
what people think of. And that's what I just wanted to capture a little bit um, at the last uh, Christian Alliance for Orphans Summit. I just interviewed several people about, you know, it wasn't really interviews. It was just, hey, when you hear the term orphanage, what do you think of? And so I've put together, I think there's four of them here and uh, there's a few. So whether it's three or four, you're going to be hearing from people um, that are doing this work. And these aren't just people off the street. These are people that were at the CAFO summit. So these are people working in orphan care. And you'll just hear from these, from these four people, um, the differences that we have and things that we really need to think about when we're having conversations with other people. So here it goes. When I hear the word orphanage, I think of a hard place for a kid to grow up. I think of where my son was before I adopted him, and I'm thankful that he's in a family now and thriving. I think it's a place where kids shouldn't be if they don't have to, and um, that if we can get them kids out of there and get them in families, whether it be reunited with their birth families or put in a foster situation or, or brought into an adoptive family, that's always ideal. When I hear orphanage, I think residential care. When I hear the word orphanage, I think about a, a building, a big building with lots of children. Um, some of them in the babies maybe laying in the cribs and um, just having limited one-on-one care and children that need a lot of love and attention. When I hear the term orphanage, I think of an institutionalized uh, care facility where uh, someone with a good heart has initiated this, but it's filled with workers who may not have that same heart and children who are reaching out and desiring someone to love them. Well, as you can tell, there are many perspectives on what an orphanage is, but the bottom line is it is a place for kids who need a home. So hopefully that gave you just a little bit of perspective that we can all hear one word and we get images of different things that come to mind. I know for me, uh, just as a mom of a child who's lived in an orphanage, the images that uh, come to my mind are are based in reality. And so um, I, I love that we were able to highlight that and just the discussion that it can create. Um, moving forward. So, Phil, we're going to move into our Phil and Kelly recommends, and I know you have some things you want to share with our listeners, so why don't you go ahead and do that? Yeah, the first thing I have is a book um, that actually leads to something that I think is extremely important for all of us to do. It's something I was able to do last week, um, and the book is called Living Forward. It's by Daniel Harkavy and Michael Hyatt. And the idea of the book is is how to create your life plan and something. It's it's basically you come you come away after doing this life plan with creating answering three questions. You basically are answering. Um, how do you want to be remembered? How do you want? To, how do you want to be remembered? And in doing that, you basically write your eulogy as if you died today. And so you try to bring everyone that knows you today that would probably be at your funeral. And to some people, that sounds morbid, um, but it actually is a great practice to to see how do you want to be remembered because you take that and then you say who matters most. And you know those are the people that you talked about there. And how do you want to remember be remembered by them? And then basically it's how are you going to get there? How are you going to make that happen? And so in so doing, you create this eulogy, then you create your priority lists, and then you create specific commitments, which a lot of people will refer to as their goals. But I like the term specific commitments because it's basically what are you committing to in the, the timeline that you put on that commitment that will help you 
to be remembered how you want to be remembered. And so it's something that is critical. It's self-care. It's something that is so important for anyone listening to this podcast to do. So that book, definitely, definitely recommend it, but not just read it because then it's just something you read, but to actually apply it and do this life plan in this form or some other form. So you're able to really hopefully live more intentionally. And then the other is a uh, is on the lighter side, um, but it's not really that light. It's it's a book, or it's a movie, and it's called The Great Jilly Hopkins. And some of you have probably already seen it. Some of you probably saw the sneak preview of it the first night it came out. Um, but uh, it's it's a movie that I was able to just pick up on DVD the other day, watch with my family, and it was something that um, really shows uh, a lot of the realities of foster care. You know, it's 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 the it shows the joys of it. It shows the heartache of it. It shows the difficulties of it. And it basically follows this, this girl, Jilly, and she's a foster kid. And um, it's, it shows, uh, I'm not going to ruin it for you, but the yearnings, the joys, and, and the, the hopes and fears and dreams and disappointments that, that come with the realities. I thought that it showed the realities of it pretty darn well. So it's something that I recommend for you. It's definitely family friendly. It's definitely something that uh, will be able to encourage conversation with people about this very, very difficult issue. So uh, with that, we are going to wrap up this this show. Um, again, thanks for the download. Thanks for being part of this community. And please engage in all the ways that uh, Kelly talked about at the beginning of this episode. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan. Think Orphan.